0: Ladies and gentlemen, from time to time, radio programs of vastly individual and divergent types. As far as I'm concerned, this project is a lot more important than that cosmic ray bomb they're testing out in the Pacific tonight.
1: Boys and girls,
0: your attention, please. Presenting a new exciting radio program. An well, interesting piece of
1: news. Start beating those signals, Mark.
0: Oh,
1: oh what's the you?
0: I might as well tell you the whole story.
1: Here is your host and master of ceremonies.
2: Welcome on in, guys and gals. You are listening to the Northern Miner Podcast, and I am your host, Matthew Keevil. As usual, we are brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance. Please do head over to yukonminingalliance.ca to check out all the exciting exploration and development activity going on in Canada's Yukon Territory. And this is episode 80 for the week of November 20th. I am actually freshly returned from Whitehorse after attending the annual Yukon Geoscience Forum. So thanks to uh, the Yukon Mining Alliance and the Chamber of Mines as well as the government for inviting me up there to sit on a few panels, moderate some discussions, and generally talk a little bit about investment broadly and in the Yukon specifically. So we touched a little bit on uh, what we've been talking about on the podcast recently, uh, including topics like electric vehicles, their impact on on the industrial metals complex, what we think about gold moving ahead, and other great topics. So thanks to uh, the YMA once again for inviting me up to the Geoscience Forum. We look forward to doing it again next year. And speaking of great events, we have another jam-packed episode for you this week with exclusive content from our Progressive Mine Forum, which took place in Toronto roughly three weeks ago. Uh, this week, we have President and CEO of IM Gold Corporation, Steve Letwin, and his keynote speech from the event, where he recounts some of the lessons he learned uh, professionally growing up in Canada's oil patch and transitioning over to the frothy gold markets in the mid-2000s. Uh, Steve will also talk a little bit about uh, the hard lessons lessons he subsequently learned during the 2008 market crash uh, and how IM Gold has adjusted their approach and business strategies to uh, better focus on cost control and innovation and how that has impacted their uh, operations uh, positively. So uh, this will be a great little, uh, little speech from Steve. We'll run that. Uh, I think it clocks in at about 16 minutes. Meanwhile, on our sponsor spotlight this week, I have a really great one. Uh, this is Stéphane LeBlanc from Rio Tinto. He is the managing director of Titanium an iron ore for Rio, Uh, and he's gonna be talking to us about corporate social responsibility. So yeah, that's right, CSR, uh, and about Rio Tinto's partnership model and how they're focusing on building partnerships in remote communities. And that includes some success stories around their Diavik diamond mine in the Northwest Territories and how Rio is sort of evolving in terms of how it deals not just with stakeholder relations, but also internally uh, with different departments and geographic areas and how it's building this sort of synergistic uh, operational strategy that uh, brings everyone together and make sure there's uh, no none of that silos. We hear a lot about communication silos. Uh, so this is a strategy that they're implementing, not just externally to deal with stakeholders and First Nations and local communities, uh, but also internally to improve communications and make sure uh, that the operations as a whole and as a corporate entity as a whole run together more smoothly. So uh, we'll talk to Stefan about that uh, during our sponsor spotlight this week. It's a great segment. Uh, But first, before we dig into our exclusive Progressive Mind Forum material, I am going to do uh, do our news and notes for the week, uh, and we'll touch base on uh, a little bit about commodity prices, foreign exchange rates, and lots more fun stuff. To kick us off, global equities were mostly up this morning after the European Central Bank announced that it will incrementally change its monetary policy next year. The move is consistent with a gradual exit from its quantitative easing program. Meanwhile, U.S. 10-year yields were flat at about 2.36% ahead of recording, while commodity prices were on the rise today. Copper jumped 1% to $3.13 per pound, while gold gained 0.4% to close at $1,280 cents per ounce. Furthermore, West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil was up 1.2% to $57.09 US per barrel. And the greenback was largely changed against most major currencies today, though the loonie did strengthen slightly to close around US 78.1 cents per dollar. Digging into some of the details of our commodities, uh, after closing on a high note last week, gold saw its largest daily drop in almost eight weeks as it inversely tracked U.S. dollar moves yesterday. Uh, Gold is trading in adverse lockstep to the U.S. dollar, which puts it firmly back within recent trading ranges. The market is in somewhat of a quote-unquote holding pattern, says Scotiabank, as it awaits tomorrow's U.S. Fed minutes, as well as what might come from Janet Yellen stepping down. On the geopolitical safe haven front, U.S. President Donald Trump put North Korea back on a list of state sponsors of terrorism on Monday. And total gold ETFs were up roughly 10,000 ounces to start the week. Shifting gears to our industrial metals complex, the LME base metals were all in modestly positive territory this morning, with copper outperforming the group on news of potential Peruvian supply disruptions, as well as data from the International Copper Study Group overnight, suggesting that the global refined red metal market recorded a 50,000 ton deficit through August. Global refined production, Scotiabank notes, was flat year-on-year, with primary production falling 1.5%, but scrap output climbing 10%. Uh, Scotia also notes that Southern Copper Corp was set to strike from midnight today, while workers at Peru's Mining Federation are also set to meet this week with thri- uh, s- strikes threatened. Uh, LME copper stocks declined a sizable 7,000 tons last night, while LME zinc stocks were down 1,200 tons. And that pretty much caps off our news and notes for the week. So let's head on over to the keynote speech from the Northern Miners Progressive Mine Forum. Uh, And once again, this is the president and CEO of IM Gold's Stephen Letwin, talking a little bit about his experiences growing up in the business professionally, uh, transferring over from oil and gas uh, to the gold sector and what he's learned since the recent 2008 downturn that saw those gold prices come off from historic highs of $1,800 per ounce to to where we saw them last year at around $1,100. Obviously, we've strengthened a bit since then, up to about that 1250 to 1300 range, where we have been range-bound for quite some time. Uh, so Steve will recount a little bit about his experiences in the business, as well as how I Am Gold is incorporating innovation and dealing with cost control to set up more sustainable business. So let's run this great clip from I Am Gold, and I will be back after the break to uh, introduce our sponsor, Spotlight, with Rio Tinto. I always, uh,
1: I always get worried when they call me a pro. Um, I've got 20 minutes, and so what I, what I wanted to do is take you through a little bit of my history and hopefully share a little bit of my experiences, particularly as they uh, tie into innovation, <clears throat> excuse me. So I'm, uh, I'm 62 years old. I was born in southern Ontario, raised on a farm, went to school here in Ontario. I spent the first couple of years with Procter & Gamble here in Toronto, and then uh, at the tender age of uh, 26, I got headhunted to Calgary, Alberta, and I went to work for a fellow that 95% of you won't know, maybe some of you do or remember. He was sort of the Elon Musk of uh, the oil days. His name was Jack Gallagher. So at 26, I went to work for Jack Gallagher, who was building at that time Canada and in fact North America's largest oil and gas business. And uh, unfortunately, Jack lost his job, lost his company within three years of uh, me getting there. Not, not that I was tied to that hopefully. but uh, Jack has, Jack made the mistake that many of us tend to make and continue to make around debt, and innovation, and I'm I'm gonna tie those two things together a little bit. So Jack went out when oil was around $25 and started acquiring properties and started to invest in what I call long cycle rates of return, big projects. He was in the Beaufort, he acquired uh, Hudson's Bay Oil & Gas, and because he had fallen in love with his own equity, he did it with debt. Sound familiar? And keep in mind, Jack was a superhuman being. If he was here today, we'd all love the guy. Very charismatic, very smart, but he makes the mistake and made the mistake that many of us do, and I made this mistake, so I'm gonna refer back to it, of falling in love with your own equity and not keeping an eye on what's going on in innovation. So as Jack, piled into long cycle rates of return projects, people started to change drilling programs in Western Canada, go for shallower wells, get shorter cycle economics, and when oil prices fell from $25 to $9, and interest rates went from 5% to 21%, that company died. And along with it, the dream that Jack had for Canada's oil and gas, exploration program at the time. The lesson there is, you can never forget about basic economics, you can never forget about your cost structure, and you can never ever forget about what innovation and the change in technology can do to your business. It is happening today, it happened 100 years ago, it's gonna continue every day, every month, every year, forever. And as human beings, it's easy to forget that because you get on a roll. You get convinced by the marketplace, by your share price, that this will never change. I'm telling you because I went through it. And I'll come back to that in a minute. So that was my first experience at 26 years of age. And I have not forgotten that. I've never forgotten Jack sitting in the boardroom, crying uncontrollably at the age of 65 because he lost his company. I went from there into the upstream oil and gas business in Calgary, and I watched something very interesting. In the mid-'80s to mid-'90s, the belief was there would be never another pipeline built in Canada, another oil pipeline. There was too much oil, oil was trading around $10, and this would never happen again. And what happened at that point in time is that companies like Enron, people remember Enron? When people started a new model, and this model was we trade electricity, we trade oil and gas, we do everything online, we're the smartest guys in the world and even though we are running our debt up and even though we're trading at a 100 times multiple, that's okay. Enron lasted for almost 10 years and when I was living in Houston, Texas, working for TransCanada, I got to know the CEO of Enron and the chairman, hell of a nice guy. Same experience. Selling something that was not sustainable, selling something that didn't have any hard assets behind it and ran debt up unbelievably until he had a liquidity problem in 2001 and 30,000 people lost their jobs. One of the major chartered financial institutions, Arthur Anderson, went under. Sound familiar? Again, too much emphasis on debt, too much emphasis on something that wasn't backed up by hard assets. So, when I look between Dome and Enron, I look at common things. Balance sheet, the fact that Dome forgot about the fact a little guy could come in and disrupt what they were doing on long cycle. Enron that went the other way, put everything into something which are what I would call was fairly um, non-transparent, magical, and something the market wanted to grab a hold of because they were sick and tired of hearing about oil and gas and pipelines. So as I moved through my career and I looked at these things, one would think that when I joined the gold business in 2010, I'd gone to Harvard, I'd had all these experiences that I would know exactly what I was doing Uh, Clearly, I did not. Because when I got into the gold business in 2010, what was happening? Gold was going from $800 to $2,000. The industry itself had gone completely into long cycle. Big mines, remote places, high cost structure. What did Steve Letwin do? He should have at that time said, wow, our cost structure is too high. We're completely betting on long cycle. We're not doing anything in innovation. We should be improving our metric and changing the model right now. I didn't do any of that. I came to Toronto. The stock price went from $3 to 23.50 and I felt like Mick Jagger. Going to restaurants, hey, right? Go to market, to analyst meetings and they would say, they wouldn't ask one question about our cost structure. It was all about ounces, 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 ounces. Tell me how many ounces you're gonna add. Not one question about your technology, not one question about where you were drilling, not one question about where you're taking the company long cycle, short cycle. It was all around, how many ounces are you gonna be able to deliver? The ghost of Jack Gallagher should have been in the room with me, saying, Steve, It's time you change, because what these guys are driving you to is exactly what they drove me to. Failure. And that's exactly where I was headed. And a year and a half later, when gold turned in 2012 and dropped from $1,960 to $1,057 in 18 months, we lost 800 million a year in cash flow. Horrifying experience. And we almost or could have lost the company. A couple of things saved us. I woke up, slapped myself across the face and said, "What the hell are you doing?" We sold some assets, we kept the balance sheet strong, we reduced our debt, and brought people like Tony here, 33-year-old guy with lots of good ideas around innovation technology into the company. We changed the whole company from being focused on long cycle to a short cycle balance, which brought cash flow in sooner, brought our cost structure down, and at the same time, improved our balance sheet. Surprise, surprise, the stock, which had fallen to fifty, And you had analysts and you had people who had purchased the stock. I would go to the Denver Gold Show. And people who had purchased I Am Gold shares would walk by and look at the ground. Not me, look at the ground. They don't want to look at me. Loser. You lost money. The worst thing you can do in life is lose somebody's money. They are unforgiving. Unforgiving. Remember that. So, we changed. The stock now is sitting 750-ish Canadian. It's up 600% since then up 70%, 60% this year. Let's not forget the lessons that we learned. Short cycle balance with long cycle balance, not too much debt, do not bet the farm on long cycle, and always look at innovative ways to change your cost structure. Always. Every day, every morning when you get up, think about it. And for that reason, I would tell you that I think the gold business has a great future. Because like the oil business in the 90s when all investments stopped, nobody thought oil was going anywhere, it was at $9 a barrel. <clears throat> nobody was willing to make a bet. And because of that, we got short of oil. We had a situation where not enough ex- exploration was done. The gold business, the metals business is in the same situation today and as sure as I'm sitting here, you're going to see a response in price because of the lack of exploration that's been done in this mining field. I was down in Mexico City. I had 23 guys sitting in a room at the St. Regis Hotel, sons of multi-billionaires in Mexico. Collectively, these 40-year-olds were worth $245 billion. Not one of them owns a gold stock. That should sound depressing. It actually wasn't. I thought, here's an indication of where people are putting their money. Tesla, cryptocurrency, everything related to technology that's exciting. I think you're going to see a turn. And we need to be ready for the turn. Let's continue to innovate. Let's continue to bring our cost structure down, whether that's ore sorting technology, x-ray technology, thinking about short cycle versus long cycle. Let's keep, keep doing what we're doing. And when this turns, and it will turn, we will get the benefits of that. And then when it does turn, Let's not be crazy again. Let's keep the discipline. There are companies that have done that. There are very few, but they are out there. How much do you think gold is up since 2002? 360%. Gold has moved on average 11% every year for 16 years. How many companies have actually seen their market cap improve. Out of 200, five. Do you think there's a confidence issue? Yes, and it's around cost structure and innovation. I'm so glad we're doing this conference. It's a reminder that innovation is absolutely critical to efficiency, staying ahead of the game, and making sure, most importantly, that your shareholders are getting the best value for their money. Because without it, you will not stay ahead of the game. And these cryptocurrencies, which I cannot explain. Tony's tried. And I'm sick here. I have no idea why Bitcoin is at $195 billion. I wish I would have invested. But I've made it a point when I don't understand something not to invest in it. I've seen that, we saw the dot com, right, in the late 90s. Tony's trying to link things to cryptos now, God bless him, and I hope we can do that if it means something, if it's real. But right now my concern is cost structure, balance sheet, innovation, bringing costs down so that we last for the long time. So, when four out of 10 Canadians are $200 away from not being able to make their next credit card payment, I get a little concerned about debt, and I get a little bit concerned about where we're putting our money. And I would tell you in the, from the mining space, my perspective, putting money into mining right now, I think is a good bet because we've had such a long, dry spell of exploration. And on that note, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening to my talk.
2: And welcome back to studio. Thanks again to Steve Letwin, the president and CEO of I Am Gold, for being a big part of our Progressive Mind Forum and delivering a great and topical keynote speech. You probably caught in there some of the themes we continue to hear out of both the intermediate and major gold producers, specifically in terms of maintaining that diligence on cost control. Uh, Steve, you'd hear reference in there uh, back in sort of the headier days of the early to mid-2000s when you saw gold rush up to that historic high of about $1,800 per ounce. The focus, both uh, the gold community and the analysts who cover them, maybe shifted a little bit too much to the production portfolio in terms of how many ounces per year you were producing and how big your reserve life was and shifted too far away from a diligent. Uh, focus on cost control so when uh, growth outpaces margins that's when you got a problem and hopefully uh, hopefully all the gold producers uh, feel the same way Steve does and uh, they're really really focused on maintaining that diligence both in terms of M&A and development scenarios to make sure you're not just producing more ounces but you're producing more ounces profitably so uh, another great speech from Steve there and uh, we'll continue to have a lot of content coming out of our progressive mine forum over the next few weeks Uh, so look forward to that it's going to be a lot of great Great, uh, great insight from a lot of uh, major players in the business. Uh, speaking of which, let's move right on over to our sponsor spotlight and another uh, another interesting segment. This one focusing a little bit more on the corporate social responsibility and uh, social license aspect. Uh, as I mentioned, we're going to be sitting down to chat with Stéphane Leblanc, Rio Tinto's managing director of tight. Uh, titanium and iron. Um, And uh, Stefan's going to talk a little bit, as I mentioned, about the partnership model and building long-term sustainable relationships in remote communities. We'll talk a little bit about Canada's North, a little bit about what they're doing up at the Diavik Diamond Mine, where they hold a 70% interest as operator. Uh, And we'll dig into a little bit about what partnership means for Rio Tinto, not only externally, but also internally in terms of working together across such a large multinational entity. So uh, this is going to be a great segment. I'll run my chat with stefan i think it runs just shy of 10 minutes uh, and then i'll be back after the break to wrap up the show welcome to, welcome to welcome to the sponsor spotlight
1: sponsor spotlight
2: and welcome back everybody. We are in downtown Toronto with the Northern Miners Progressive Mining Forum and we are here for our next in our interview series. Uh, right now I am joined by Stéphane LeBlanc, uh, Managing Director of at Rio Tinto of Iron, Titanium, Energy and Minerals. Thanks very much for joining us Stefan. Good morning, very happy
0: to be with you uh, this morning.
2: Um, And I caught a little bit of your panel. Uh, Obviously, you just stepped off stage, so thanks so much for joining us. Um, But uh, you were talking about Rio Tinto's partnership model. Um, And it was a bit fascinating to me, sort of the strategy behind it. So maybe for our listeners, uh, you could uh, reiterate a little bit what that partnership model actually is.
0: Yeah, in in the past year, as probably you have heard, we were talking a lot about license to operate. Uh, (laughs) uh, It was our maintenance of our person people, how we can secure the we will operate. Uh, we have made a switch to talk more about partner to operate uh, because we saw that when we were talking about the uh, licensed operate, that was narrowing a little bit the view of our people about more meeting all the regulation, filling the right report, uh, having to meet uh, the right uh, government body to uh, get the right approval. Mm-hmm. But in fact, partner is more about the relation with the community where we operate, how we can strengthen our relation to at the end of the day, uh, is uh, that will make us much stronger. Those relations is, is clear in our view have to be uh, uh, based on mutual respect, trust, and benefit. Uh, we have seen that if we build a win-win situation with uh, with the way uh, we manage our relation with the community, uh, both of us can be uh, more more successful. We were talking this morning about innovation. Uh, often innovation we talk about uh, more uh, we have in mind technology, yeah. uh, but it's clear in our mind innovation go with, with the way too that uh, we manage our operation, mm-hmm. the way we lead our operation, and the way we do uh, the partner with the community where we operate. Uh, in 2016, uh, Rio uh, uh, decided to adopt a statement of commitment for indigenous communities in Canada. Uh, that statement uh, outlined uh, our belief of uh, partnership with uh, indigenous community. That can make us uh, stronger, both of us. And again, uh, that is very important. That, that has to be based on, uh, on uh, uh, mutual respect, trust, and, and benefit. Uh, the, the four areas that we we talk are uh, talking to uh, those community. That is very important for both of us. Is uh, around uh, education and training, uh, cultural preservation, economic development and uh, environment stewardship uh, we have many examples that i can talk uh, about it let's talk about one that uh, we are we are pretty proud is our darwick uh, mine It's a diamond mine that, uh, we have in the northwest territory uh, that we started the operation in 1990s at the end of 1990s uh, we uh, we make sure that we sign agreement with uh, the five indigenous community where they, all their land have been impacted by our operation, uh, and it was important uh, that uh, with uh, continuous partnership with the community, that is just not uh, one and is done. Uh, we make sure that we review that agreement of partnership with uh, with those community uh, regularly uh, to make sure that uh, we are still committed to it and. Uh, that we uh, we we are still happy. Uh, if we look at uh, we sign an agree- socio economic uh, agreement with the Northwest uh, Territory, where we in- in- involve uh, our partner uh, indigenous partner, uh, that one was related to uh, how we can create an environment uh, monitoring panel to look at how we uh, we operate around our environment and how we meet our commitment around environment. Uh, we have been uh, our result. Uh, I've been uh, pretty good up to now with, uh, with that mine. If we look at uh, our workforce, fifty percent of our workforce come uh, uh, from uh, northern okay. area. Twenty uh, percent of it is uh, indigenous, uh, coming from those close area to, the, to our mine. That represents more than two hundred people. Seventy percent of our spending, uh, we have done up to now, uh, went to uh, northern businesses. Mm-hmm. Of that two point six million. Uh, Dollar went directly to indigenous uh, business. So, uh, is is some example that we want to make sure that we build a, a win-win a situation with the uh, with the country. It's nothing really new. It's more about we we have to make sure that all the leaders, all the organization believe in it and make it happen.
2: And it's interesting, I mean, in Canada, obviously, we talk about remote communities a lot. It's a very hot button political topic in Canada. So so when you say working with these remote communities, what's some of the things that, that you can do to help with, with people maybe who live farther north? Or, but, yeah, to, to be frank with yeah. you,
0: it's a challenge to make sure that uh, when we want to do those kind of uh, uh, commitment and when we work to uh, we want to work with our uh, the community, we don't have to arrive at uh, being the big guys and and uh, the small community out there. And we have to make sure that uh, we work hand in hand and we look how we can help them to uh, acquire skill. Mm-hmm. And when I said that, we have to be very careful to not to take too much del- the lead. We have to be a catalyzer to help them mm-hmm. to how they can develop some skill to be able to, to meet our commitments. Mm-hmm. Uh, a good a- example of it is our Amron mine that we just started in, in Australia. Yep. Uh, the landowner, the traditional landowner wanted to to, to be involved more and more on all uh, managing their land. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the beginning, they didn't have the skill that to, to do it. So we agree with, uh, with them in the Australian government that at the beginning, we'll, uh, we'll put our own people beside the community members and to, to train them on the job, mm-hmm. not directly speaking in the, in the office, but on the job for a while mm-hmm. until they are able to, uh, to do the job by themselves. And mm-hmm. after four months, they had the right the skill to be able to, uh, to fulfill the job by themselves. So we are very proud uh, of that. And I cannot have many examples, but again, it's very important that we are the catalyzer of it. We have to develop them to make sure they are able to develop their own businesses, not just related to Rio Tinto, because the, as you know, mine always close. So we have to make sure we we help them to make the transition to work for us and being able to work for others when when the, when the mine will be closed.
2: And I think I think mining has a long history of, of doing that, even like you said, it's not new. Um, it's it's we've often been involved in community building and things like that. Um, but Stefan, we, we talked about sort of the external side of this, um, but internally to Rio Tinto as well. I mean, um, maybe in terms of things like integration, uh, eliminating silos. Is there is there an internal element t- to this strategy as well in terms of partnerships like working well, better within your own company as well?
0: But I think the main thing we have looked look is uh in the past year, often like uh, relation with community was more a CCR functional role, um, and it's very important that uh, this is lead by the operational people and okay. not just at one level, at mm-hmm. different level of the organization. Okay, I uh, try to put in place uh, ambassadors mm-hmm. uh, that can be an engineer or shop employee working for us. That do something in the community. Okay. I think if we want to have a sustaining relation with the community, it has to be at different level of the organization. It cannot be just to the CEO of the the side that do all the the community relation. Because as you know, a CEO uh, move often from place to place. Yeah. So it's very important that we have a different level of the organization that uh, link with that that community. And, and we don't have to forget that often, yeah. uh, a lot of our people come from those communities who
2: so will leverage uh, them. So a lot of it's about empowering your employees. Exactly. To, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Stefan, i I'd like to thank you again. Once again, this has been uh, Stéphane LeBlanc, Managing Director at Rio Tinto of Iron, Titanium, Energy and Minerals. Stéphane, thanks again so much for joining us. Thank you very much. back. Thanks again to Stéphane LeBlanc from Rio Tinto for taking the time to sit down and chat with us about social license and license to operate. Uh, often when we talk about innovation in our progressive mind forum, immediately you know your mind goes to IBM and machine learning and automated trucks and perhaps new metallurgical practices and metallurgical processes. Uh, but we also like to talk uh, about these things from a human element. And uh, you'll hear some of our, uh, our upcoming guests talk about diversity in the workforce and uh, in innovative practices that go far beyond technology and machinery and it's great to hear uh, insight from a company as large and uh, with as broad a reach as Rio uh, about uh, perhaps more innovative practices and in building long-term sustainable relationships how they're approaching uh, license to operate these days and things like that so thanks again to Rio Tinto hopefully we can uh, continue to bring them in on the podcast and chat about uh, many different things and uh, a company with such a broad reach as we mentioned uh, just has so such a a vast uh, sort of pool to to draw from in terms of reference and context and how things are being done not just in Canada but internationally. Uh, so thanks again to Stefan and Rio for dropping by for that segment. And thanks to all the sponsors who are taking part in our sponsor spotlight. It's great to hear from such a diverse and uh, versatile group of professionals. Uh, We'll have not just uh, representatives from major miners like Rio, but we have suppliers and original equipment manufacturers that will be joining us uh, to talk about everything from sort of the modular uh, incremental elements of innovation in terms of things like actually applying remote-operated trucks and automated vehicles to mine sites to what, uh, as we uh, saw last week, IBM is doing with Goldcorp in terms of big data. So you'll start to hear a lot of these really, really cool reoccurring themes like standardization and how, uh, you know, like equipment manufacturers work with miners, work with big IT companies like IBM, and sort of the challenges they're facing and overcoming together uh, when it comes to innovating the mining industry. So uh, we'll look forward to a lot of those segments moving ahead. Uh, got, got a few of those in my back pocket, so uh, we will not be late on content uh, for the next month or so. But that does pretty much wrap up our show for this week thanks again to our sponsor the yukon mining alliance for hosting me this past weekend at the yukon geoscience forum in whitehorse it was a blast and thank you loyal listener for tuning in to another episode of the northern Miner podcast this has been matthew keevil and i will talk to you next week